So this evening, I would like to look like yesterday. I talked about more mental patterning, and tonight I look, like to look at uh, feelings and emotions. And in a way, what I want to do is more not the final say on feeling and emotion, because it's a big subject, and I'm sure you have all uh, lots of experience with this. We all have feelings and emotions. But just I like to look at it, kind of do a meditative exploration, and kind of look at different angles on that. Because if we look in our own experience, in our day-to-day -day living, I mean, one thing that we are, again and again, we feel and sometimes we have difficulty with, our emotions. And I think, in a way, the meditation helps us to notice, over time, to notice that there actually are different emotional states, different feelings. I would even say that actually there is nearly sometimes meditation in a very quiet and safe environment allows us to notice that actually we have certain emotional patterns, emotional habits, kind of certain feeling, emotion that seems to kind of occur even if there is nothing around it to kind of really uh, create them. For example, one of the, if I want to look at this uh, a little, this pattern, this habit, if I look at myself, I can look again, I can see that sometimes you have again this uh, level of intensity, if something happens, then you have more of the habitual emotional things, and then you have more like the light human qualities. For example, if I look at fear, which I think is a strong feeling, we might have a strong emotion. and. If I look back, not this time in South Africa, but one of the earlier times I came to South Africa, and so generally when we arrive, we generally have to uh, stay one night somewhere and then we go to the center. And this time we were, we never know with whom we're going to, get, to be put in. This <coughs> time we were uh, put in the house of this woman who was very nice and very friendly, but who was totally frightened. He was like really, really extremely fearful about everything. I mean, the, in South Africa, because of crime, of course, everything is locked up and quite amazingly so. But within herself, because of various events and things, she was really very fearful. And what I could feel in myself is that within about half a day of being with her, I became extremely fearful myself. So that we would go to town, and he's like, ah, no, I would turn back. I mean, I've never been, I've never been so afraid in my life, actually. Nothing happened to us, <laughs> but everything was frightening. You know, it was kind of very interesting to have that intense kind of emotion of fear that I had never experienced before. It was very, quite strange. And what it was interesting was how it went when after two days of kind of feeling incredibly, incredibly fearful, my friend arrived, a really bold South African, really kind of a guy who is not afraid of anything. And within two seconds, the fear was gone. As soon as I was with him, it was gone. And I found that so interesting. You know, that one minute I had it, and one minute I could be influenced by, in a way, the opposite effect. So in a way, sometimes it can be very intense, but 
sometimes it is just us, but sometimes it is also what is around us, and also they can go so far. Then if I think of the fear as a habit with myself, one of the things I was uh, frightened of habitually, and which I kind of in a way discovered in Korea, was I was afraid of the dark at night. And the problem in Korea is that you went to the toilet outside and there was this moment before I could put the light on where I was really in the dark. And as soon as I was there, I would be terribly frightened that somebody was behind me, a guy with a knife, he was going to get me. And what was interesting was that emotion was that I could really feel it. My body would, I would, my breath would be different. I was, I was so frightened because of this image. There is somebody out there to get me. And then one day we had to do this uh, kind of uh, non-sleep uh, practice. And then I thought, gosh, I'm going to be a nervous wreck, you know, going out to the toilet all through the night, and then I'm going to be really frightened. So I went to my teacher, Master Kuna, and said, what can I do? I'm so frightened, you know. Are we going to have to do this at night? He said, go back to the question, and you'll be okay. And I thought it would be like a talisman. It would be like something, like kind of, kind of you know, a good luck charm. You know, it would protect me from the bad guy. So I kind of, so I thought, okay, that's what I'll do. So I would kind of see the theorizing, what is it, what is it, what is it? And then I realized it was not a good luck charm, but actually it was a tool to go back to the moment. And when I came back to the moment, we were in the middle of nowhere, who would come to get me with a knife anyway? (laughs) (laughs) And it went. It was so interesting to see that pattern and to see actually what would dissipate it, to see the reality. But often fear sometimes is real, but sometimes it's very much imagined, something that you create. But then we can also, I would say, the light manifestation of fear is when, to me, it's just a matter of survival. As a human being, in a way, our life is very fleeting. I mean, we could die any moment. And I always find it interesting when you nearly have an accident, you nearly smashed into a car, but did not. And what is interesting, you say it, you have no problem, but you actually have the shock of that fear, ah, I could have died. And I think this is just basic survival mechanism, that actually there is no problem in fear, but just when it becomes a habit, and when it becomes a disturbing emotion. So in a way, again, the meditation, I think, can help us to look at the condition of the feeling and the emotion and at the manifestation. How does it arise? How does it manifest? What is interesting in a way with feeling is, if I may say so, how we feel about it. When we have thought, it's interesting, thought, we think we can have some control over thought. And often you give yourself a hard time, why am I having this thought? I could, you know, I should be able to let go of it. So we have this kind of relationship with thought that, yes, you know, I can work with this, I am kind of a little 
can, I can do something about this. What is interesting with feeling is that it's very different our relationship to it. We have a feeling, and actually I would say a feeling is also a very physical sensation. And we have the feeling and we think it's so there. Especially if it's painful, it is very difficult. We don't think, oh, I can, you know, let go of it like with a thought. We kind of feel it there and we kind of stuck with it and it's so real and it's so present. And I think this kind of in a way what could nearly say this stickiness, this kind of feeling of having so little choice with our feelings, so little freedom. I think in a way what the meditation could help us is to give us the choice possibly to be with them differently. Not to make them disappear, because again, I don't think the meditation is about making us feeling less or emotionless, but more when we have a feeling, when we have an emotion, to be with it differently, to kind of, in a way, again, create space around it. And I had that experience uh, kind of some years ago, when I woke up one day and I felt strange. I felt a little, I mean, I'm generally a little quiet, you know, relatively kind of joyful kind of person. But I woke up and I was feeling flat. There was this flat feeling and this grey feeling. And I thought, why? You know, my usual meditation technique, what are the conditions? You know, I mean, has anything happened to me or anything? And I looked around and there was no reason that I could see for this feeling to be there. But it was there, this kind of a little flat, heavy, grey feeling. So well, it's there. But what was interesting is that I did not do anything with it. I did not attach it to any storyline. I did not worry about it at all. Well, that's the way it is. Next day, wake up in the morning, same feeling, still there. And this went on for two weeks. But I think possibly with the help of the meditation, I just, every day was the same, ah, it's there. It was like, you know, it would be raining outside every day, or, you know, there were certain circumstances a little beyond my control. Okay, I can be aware of this, I can be with it. And then after 15 days, because I did something which was a little intense, and then it just gone, and then was replaced by other different feelings. And what in a way he taught me is that we can have feelings and be aware of them but that we don't necessarily have to proliferate with them and that it also has a lot to do with the storyline around it and what we do with it that we can just in a way be spacious with it and like generally anything else it will pass it will be replaced by something else so I would say that human beings have the capacity to feel. This is essential, this is again, that's the way we are. And the meditation is not again feeling. It's very natural. So in a way the meditation is to help us to be more in contact with our experience of inner or outer feeling. That we be sad, that we be in love, that we be joyous, whatever it is. This is just being human is to have feeling. And meditation is not about to kind of make that disappear. We're not going to become robots. I think that's not the idea. And that's why for me it was very 
wonderful to see my teacher, Master Cousin, who was very respected and he was renowned for having had, you know, uh, various awakening experience and he was very wise. But at the same time, you know, he would really have feelings. You know, I can remember him one day, I kind of found him at the corner of the temple and he was this big stick and he said, where is my attendant? Have you seen my attendant? And I thought, uh-uh, yeah, sounds like the attendant, you know, is in trouble. So he had disappeared. <laughs> he came back later, when getting the coast was a little kind of easier. He must have kind of done something. Oh, another time, one, one thing that he used to do, which I thought was so kind of uh, wonderful, is that they would, he would give talks, he would be asked to give talks for special funeral ceremony. If he knew somebody at a certain time, then he would ask to, be, to give a talk in honor of the person who died. And if he knew the person, then I could guarantee that about 10 minutes within the talk, he would suddenly, you know, he gave a great talk, like, there is no birth, there is no death, I mean, very kind of, you know, absolute kind of talk. And then he would stop, and then he would cry for about two minutes, you know, cry, you know, then kind of take out his handkerchief, kind of, and then, yes, there is no birth, there is no death. <laughs> and that's so wonderful that he actually could have the two positions. The position of seeing it as part of life and the position of being sad because that fellow died and he loved him and he knew him. Another place where he cried, and that was kind of, kind of a little kind of a mystery for me. There was kind of talks he gave to the monks and the nuns and there was talks he gave to the lay people. And there was one special talk he gave to the lay people we never got. But whenever he gave that talk, because I was his attendant sometime, and I could see him, ah, he's going to give this talk. And again, I kind of halfway through the talk, he would start to cry. So after a few times, I thought, you know, I have to ask him what goes on. So I said, you know, why do you cry there? He said, well, I am talking to the lay people about the gratitude we should have to our parents. And there is ten gratitude. And he generally cried at the seventh. Because it's a gratitude he had toward his mother and the pain and the sadness he would have when he left home. And the gratitude for her to let, let him leave. And then he would be so sad that she was sad. Then he would cry and then it would be to the next one. And to me, in a way, it showed freedom. It showed freedom to have feelings, to express feelings, but then they would, they would go to be replaced by something else. Because I think often, uh, with us, we have feelings, and then, in a way, we grasp at them. We kind of identify very strongly with them. And then, due to that, we exaggerate, magnify, and kind of, in a way, nearly make them stay longer than they could. So I would say, in a way, what we have is that we have feelings which are very natural, according to circumstances and to what happens, and then those feelings turn into disturbing emotions. And through that then we become excited, agitated, fearful, and very often we cause pain to ourselves and we cause pain to others. So now I'd like to just read a little quote because I think it seems to exemplify to me the different way in a meditative way to deal with feelings. And so this is a letter 
of actually the Zen master in the 12th century in China who really kind of in a way started to develop the, the, the question, what is this, that method? And he, was, he had a lot of contact with lay people and they would write, he had a lot of disciples who were lay people and they would write to him and he would write back. And here you have this man who has written him a letter and now he answers back to that letter. I take it your fifth son is not recovering from his illness. It is precisely when afflicted that you should carefully investigate and inquire where the affliction arises from. If you cannot get to the bottom of its origination, then where does the one who is afflicted right now come from? If you want to think, then think. If you want to cry, then cry. What I like about this quote is that, again, you have various ways to deal with strong feelings. There is his son, his son is very likely dying, the father is very sad, feeling very afflicted. And so Master Tawi said, look, it's when you are afflicted, it's when you have this difficult emotion that you should look, inquire, where does it arise from? So really looking into it, into its origin. But then you say, if you cannot do that, then you could ask, this person who is afflicted right now, where does it come from? But then if you can't do that, then just think. And if you can't even do that, then just cry. And so I think it shows us that as meditators, we don't just have to have one way to deal with feelings, with emotions, but that actually there are various ways we can look at them, we can investigate them, we can reflect on them, or we can just add the feeling, and then we just be with it as it is. So what I like to, to look a little is as the, 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 the disturbing element of when the feeling you know, becomes a disturbing emotion and how it can take us over and unsettle us. And so again, to kind of inquire, to investigate, how does it feel, how does it manifest, what is the story of it? So I think this is one important element of the practice, is to really experience fully our feeling. But it is true that when you are sitting in meditation, because I presume it's relatively quiet and not much is going on, you won't have so many different feelings in general. So when we talk of this investigation of feeling for me, it's more in daily life. Because it's in daily life that you get into contact with people, that you have kind of, you know, difficulty or whatever, then stronger feeling might arise. And I think that then, is a kind of a, we can apply the meditation. And so first I like to look at positive feeling. I think that in a way, uh, often for some reason, I don't know why, there is this idea in Buddhism of detachment, of equanimity, and sometimes there is this feeling that people think they must be kind of like, they must be this baseline, you know, that no matter what happens, they have this baseline. They kind of don't feel much, one way or another. And I would say this is not what the meditation is about. We're not kind of supposed to get to a baseline and stay there. I think it would be a very uninspiring 
and our lived existence. That's what we have to do. So I would say one of the very important positive feelings that in a way it seems to me we experience and we need also to experience and to cultivate is love. Because I think love is very important as a feeling because it helps us to open. It helps us to open to ourselves, to others. It helps us to care for life and for the world and it helps us to relate. Love is about relationship. Of course, first, love for ourselves, so relate, positive relationship with ourselves, but also love as in opening to others, relating to them in a certain way. And I would say the texture, I would say there is a texture to love, and the texture is warmth. I think it's interesting, that's why I think it's so important with meditative awareness, not just to be aware of negative things, I think it's as important to be aware of positive things, like positive feelings. So in a way, when you are in love, when you love somebody, when you are with a loved one, notice, how does it feel? And I would say, generally, there is this texture, there is this warmth, because there is this appreciation, there is, in a way, this joy of being with that person. And I would say myself, that's what I feel when I am with my niece. I have this lovely niece, Lena, and she's five years old. And I, I think it's lovely to be with a child who is bright and kind of, I mean, she can also can be crying and very difficult, but there is beauty to be with her. And whenever I am with her, I feel this warmth. And once we had this wonderful moment with her, and I felt to me it was kind of really exciting exemplifying this love, this quality of love. And we had been working in the garden, Stephen and I, and we just kind of clean and we're sitting on the sofa, a little tired, and just listening to music. And it was kind of Mozart, something of Chopin, something like this. It's kind of, you know, classical music. And then she rushes up the stairs from my mother, who lives downstairs, and she comes up on us, who goes like that, and she listens to the music and she said, I'll dance. <laughs> and then off she goes. You know, and she dances. And what was nice is that for the next 30 minutes, she did that. <laughs> and, and the only thing that she needed was us to look at her with, with love, which we did. So we were just there to look at her. <laughs> And I was amazed that it lasted so long. <laughs> amazing feeling, amazing feeling of love, I would say, and spaciousness. And what is interesting is that after that, and she went back down, and da, 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 whenever she comes back, there is always one moment in her stay that she will try to recreate that feeling. And she can't. The music is not right. <laughs> But I find that, because in a way it was special, she also felt it as special, this special feeling of love. And I could see that this is also something I could see very much with my grandmother, who died recently. But before she was, she died the last few months, she was really, in a way I could see, starting to lose the ability as a human being to relate to others. 
And so like one of the things she would do is that when I would come back from travel, there would be that first woman she would see me and she would be so happy to see me. She would kind of be, ah, you're here. And I was a favorite granddaughter. She would really be, and, I, and it would be the wonderful, loving kind of feeling. And then as she became sicker, then in a way she, this did not happen anymore. She could not even relate to me at that level. There would be no smile. And I could feel, in a way, I felt so sad that there could be less of that warm, loving feeling. But where it stayed was with animals. And so she fell in love with the Miss Rabbit. And so she would keep the rabbit <laughs> next to her the whole time. And we were a little worried because we could kind of get a little hot. <laughs> but because, you know, she was, uh, it's a long story, but, <laughs> but what, was, what I could see is that in a way she needed the rabbit in a way to feel that warm feeling that is so important for us as human beings to feel. And it was so nice for my niece to say, I must bring the rabbit for grandma, you know, that she could see how essential it was for, in a way, her health as a human being. And also, I think we have to be careful in terms of love, because often we equate love with liking. Yeah, there is appreciation in love, but for me, in love there is also caring. And I think often we equate, I love somebody because I like them, because they do what I want, or because they've got something that I like in a special way. And for many years I lived in community. And living in community, I think, is the greatest training you can have if you want to really meditate in daily life. This is a perfect opportunity. But what I've noticed is that living in community with people where it, again, is an arranged marriage because you have not chosen to be with them, but you kind of end up together by a common interest and set of circumstances, is that we might not like each other, but we could all care for each other. We could all be concerned because we are all human beings. And to me this is an important element of the love, that there is this caring for the humanness, for the life of the person, which then actually creates this relationship, creates this bond. And it's funny, people who have been in community, even if they don't like each other, they meet each other five years later and they fall about in each other's arms because they have shared something very special. The fact they related at this very intimate, caring level. So, in a way, I would say, kind of, you know, as meditator, to cultivate love, you know, with children, with family, with friends, with various things in our life, because it will open us, it will nurture us. But what is interesting as a feeling, it's quite wonderful, but it can become a disturbing emotion. And it is very interesting to look at when it is the feeling, and when does it become a disturbing emotion, and then to bring meditation to that, and to notice what goes on, what happens. I would say one of the manifestations of love as a disturbing emotion is falling in love. I mean, you might say falling in love is fantastic, possibly, possibly, but personally, when I, fall in, when I fell in love with my husband, 
I mean, for three days, I was all over the place. It was like, wow, it was a little too much. I was quite pleased when it stopped. Love <laughs> 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 could stop. Because it might be kind of, you know, an interesting feeling, but it was not very functional. <laughs> this is one of the problems with, I would say, disturbing emotion. Even generally, it is not very functional, and also, sometimes it can be painful. But I think what is interesting also in, about love is actually the jealousy that can arise from it. This is very interesting because what, I mean, if you have no reason to be jealous, what is interesting when you're jealous, what is the standpoint? The standpoint is that there is only a finite amount of love. And if the person gives more, gives some to somebody else, I get back less. Very interesting. I think it's interesting to look. What are we doing when we are jealous? We cannot say it's a limited amount and I want most of it. You know, and less over there. When it seems to me the more love there is, the more love actually will grow, will spread around. What is interesting also with love is that especially in partnership, is that it makes us feel insecure. And it makes us realize that we have this often strange idea that because often it's very hard for us to love ourselves, when somebody loves us, we think, what's the matter with them? How can they love me? There must be something wrong with them. And it's very interesting that beginning period of being together with someone, our one is so insecure. And I think it's, lots, it's interesting then to look, what am I saying there? Where is the insecurity coming from? What am I telling myself? And often that's what we say. What's the matter with him? You know, that he can love me, we saw, whatever, whatever. And in a way I would say this is one of the beauty, the gift of love, is that it makes you actually, over time you accept that, yeah, you're a lovable person. That person loves you. And from there you can be this amazing trust, amazing acceptance. Another thing with love is possessiveness. That's interesting. You know, that we, because it's so nice to be with the object of love, that we want to stick to them, you know? And I can see if I do this to my niece, I mean, she doesn't want to be with me all the time. She wants to be with, you know, she wants to move and da-da-da, kind of a... And it's the same with our partners. You know, I could see that with my husband at the beginning. I was sticking to him, you know, like a limpet, you know. <laughs> but what was interesting in doing that, I was not developing any relationship, a friendship with anybody else. And I was kind of, you know, closing him in a bit. So, I mean, finally when I saw that, hey, why am I doing this? You know, sticking to him like that. And then, then the kind of the thing really opened up. I think this is in a way the thing with disturbing emotions, that often it closes us, it closes us, it limits us, again it limits our potential. I think I should stop on the loving bit and go into the negative feelings. So, negative feelings. I like to look at two tonight. And one of them is anger. Because anger has a very bad press in Buddhism. And, uh, you know, in many different ways, it's kind of, you know, a no-no. But I think if we look into it, if we explore anger, I think that as a feeling, I would say it's perfectly natural to be angry. This is just part of our 
array of feeling we can feel. And then I think it's to say, I must not be angry because I'm a Buddhist, or because I'm a meditator, or because my teacher says it's a bad idea, or because in the precept I'm not supposed to be angry. I think this is kind of a, going a bit against reality. And I think it's more interesting to explore what goes on when one is angry. And I think as a feeling, it's interesting, as a feeling, it gives you energy, it gives movement, and it kind of, there is concern within it. So there is energy, there is movement, and there is concern. But it, uh, the texture, the texture is quite hot, it's quite explosive, and I would say in general, anger is not a restful feeling. You kind of generally, you feel it, you generally feel impelled to act impelled to speak. But I think actually anger can be a positive feeling. But actually it can be quite constructive and creative if it's kind of in a way oriented in a certain direction. And for example, I can think of a lady I was working with when I was living in England before. I was a trustee for a, a battered women's shelter. And so I used to uh, share a car ride with her. And over time that we kind of uh, shared the car rides, then I kind of got to know her story, and that she was helping with the trust because she had been a battered woman, a woman. And I had no idea. I mean, she looked, you know, like a perfectly young woman, kind of quite able, and kind of, you know, I would have thought, you know, she would have been strong, and that, she, that would not have happened to her. But she said, yes, I mean, her husband really beat her up and sent her to hospital, and I mean, the police was involved with everything. But what is interesting is that, in a way, that made her very angry that this could happen to her, that it could behave in that way. But the anger, in a way, helped her to reconstruct her life and also to try to do something for other people in that situation. So there I found the anger was very constructive for her, gave her really a lot of energy to move on in her life and to really kind of change it and do it in a different way. Or if I think of this very famous person in France who is a, a Catholic monk and he's called the Abbe Pierre. And I was at this big kind of uh, time when the Dalai Lama comes and gives teachings in France. And before the teaching itself, there was this little mini conference, interface conference with Catholic and Christian and Buddhist and things. And there was this little guy. I mean, Abbe Pierre is a quite thin, small man who all his life has been very ill physically, not very good health. And on the podium with the Dalai Lama and all these people, and this generally is about peace and compassion, and him standing up and saying, I am angry. I thought, hey, he's angry. <laughs> hey, why not? You know, if he's angry, maybe you know there is some good thing about it. And actually that fellow throughout his life is famous because he was angry about homelessness. He is angry about poverty. And because he is angry about it, then he did something about it. So he really created this uh, whole organization, Emmaus, which helped homeless to get their life together and everything. And there I could see that, yes, there again the anger was constructive, was very kind of energetic and very creative. But it is true that anger also can be negative and can go into this very disturbing emotion where then it leads to attack, it leads to the other person seen as an enemy and leads to rejection. 
kind of, you know, pushing the person off or doing things like that. And then, the problem with the texture of it is that it becomes a fire that burns yourself and also can destroy others. And I think it's interesting for us to feel it with the meditation, to feel when you're angry. And when you, suddenly you have this thought, I want to get them. And you basically say, I want to annihilate them. I want them to get out of my life or whatever. I mean, this is fairly strong. You know, it's see that feeling, if it's not, you know, a given kind of constructive way to deal with it, can become this very, I would say, dangerous thing that can lead us in very dangerous paths and kind of really hurt other people. And I think the way we can start to notice it is with the bodily sensation. When, when we feel anger, not to say, I should not feel angry or whatever, but just to, how does it feel in my body? What happens to my body? What do I say to myself? So to really explore and in such a way that you're not so overwhelmed by it, but actually you know it, you know what's going on. And when I talk about anger, you know there is a whole spectrum from mild irritation at the post office, in the queue, to kind of like, you know, hatred, violence, aggression. I think in a way there is a whole range of things we can look at, we can notice. And it's not about judging ourselves, but it's very much exploring. How do I react? How do I respond? What goes on? And recently I, found, I, found, I had some experience which made me see that actually there is two different aspects, you could say, to the anger. That one can be what I would call the odd anger. And recently this happened to me, after a long time, for many years, I have not been angry, you know, from that kind of, you know, quite kind of a very angry, irritated, yes. But, and then suddenly something happened, and somebody said something in a meeting, and I blew my top off, totally. And what was interesting afterward, it did not last too long, and then I kind of, you know, excused myself and so forth. What I saw is that I was incoherent. You know, that I, was, I could not put a thought together, I could not put the word together at anything. And I saw, yes, in a way, I could not help it, so be it, that things happen, but I could realize afterwards that it leads to incoherence. When you have a hot anger in that way, then you generally become incoherent and generally defeat the purpose of that. But also I think there can be what I call cold anger. And that I experienced actually at Gaia House. Many years ago, there was a manager, and I was the support person for the manager, and so every, once, every two weeks, I was supposed to see all of them, one by one. And I arrived one day, and suddenly there is this one guy, manager, who said, I am not going to see you. Well, you know, I said, well, you, well, you have to, you know. Because not that I want to, but we kind of have to do this, this is part of the contract. And then for the next 20 minutes, it set out to kind of, you know, kind of shout at me, but not in a hot, incoherent way, but in a very, very, I mean, I was, I was very impressed. I was it was very impressive. I never seen it. You know, this manipulative, cold anger where you dig at the person, you find all the things you can get them at. 
The problem for him is that I did not buy it. I kind of, it was wonderful to just, I, mean, I admired it. I thought, wow, oh, that's the way you do this. Oh, that's the way you get at people, you know. And uh, I thought, wow, yeah. But I could not identify with it, you know. I did not see, yeah, this did not seem to describe me. So I just was kind of the spectator of it. And then later he kind of came and saw me and da 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 da. And then I kind of thought maybe we should do something about this manager because if he does this to me, means he might do this to everybody else, which was kind of fairly, I thought, uh, not very constructive. So we kind of worked on it a little. Anyway, that's another story. <coughs> another feeling. I thought just, I mean, I don't have much time left, but I wanted to look at two. A little, which, which could be considered a negative feeling, is maybe a little kind of what sometimes we fear, a little kind of flat feeling, a little kind of depressed feeling. We kind of, not the illness as such, but I think depression is a, can be an illness and biological and everything. But when there is this, you feel kind of a little low, you feel a little flat. And I think we can feel that for different reasons. I think we can, in a way, physically feel that, feel kind of physically flat without energy. And I know for myself, when I go traveling, I can guarantee I come back and for three days, I just can't do anything. I am so just tired, out of it, flat. I just read stupid novels for three days and then I'm fine. But that's my way of coping with it. Not everybody can do that. And so I think, the difficulty with this feeling of kind of a little depressed, little flat, little low, little grey, little kind of, is that actually on the oh, it is the opposite of anger. Anger fires you. Anger makes you move. You know, it nearly makes you feel alive. And I think sometimes that's why we enjoy it. But this feeling is kind of it's kind of heavy, it's grey. We feel less energy. And I think this is a little hard to be with it. But you know, I think also there it's important to see what are the conditions that give rise to it. Because it could come from sadness. It could come from because somebody died or because we lost something. It could come from, often it comes also when we feel blocked. We feel things not moving, things not working, we feel blocked. And then, then we kind of suddenly things feel kind of like that heavy. Or we might feel ill. I think often this feeling comes from either being tired or feeling physically ill. You really don't have the energy, so you, you again feel that feeling. And so in a way, how can we be with that? How can we be with that so that it does not go into what I would call disturbing emotion? Because when it goes into disturbing emotion, then it's really paralyzing. Again, it's instead of the disturbing emotion of anger which really makes us act out. This is opposite. It paralyzes us. Like we feel kind of paralyzed, like, like people feel they are in glue, they can't move, they don't want to do anything. And I think then it's very, we have to be very careful to kind of start to know again the condition and the manifestation. What is it that triggers it? Because generally when we start to have the feeling, and when it goes into the disturbing emotion, then we spiral down very fast. And then it's very hard then to come back up. And I think one of the most painful things about it is that it cuts off, it cuts us off from others. It kind of really cuts us off from the world, from relationships. 
we feel very alone and we feel like we can't connect and I think it's important to in a way find small ways in which we can do something about it and try to see the meditation can help us to bring a little space to kind of give us kind of further little thing we could do we could slightly slightly in a way weaken it we could kind of slightly lighten it up and I think one of the things we have to be very careful and meditation can help us is to try to not spiral down into the poor me syndrome because I think this is one of our definite emotional pattern, emotional habit. Poor me. Nobody loves me. I am hopeless. I am alone in the world. This, I think, is a definite. And we can go there so fast. Something happens to us, we blocked, we sad, whatever happens. You know, and sometimes somebody else dies. And so, I mean, it's sad that they die, but very quickly we go into this poor me, poor me. It's very interesting how it's very painful, this poor me syndrome, but actually for some reason we wallow in it. I mean, this is one of, to me, one of the mysteries of the universe. You know, and so in a way to see how does it work for me, this poor me syndrome? How do I go there? What is it that triggers it? What is it that feeds it? What is it that exaggerates it? What is it that magnifies it? And finally, to just notice how the feeling, the thought, and the physical sensation are all linked. They're not separate. When we have a feeling, we generally have a physical sensation, and generally there are thoughts which accompanies it. And so with the meditation, when we're trying to be aware, trying to see the whole of that, not just focused on one aspect, but try to see all the aspects and try to see how we can work with this. Can we in a way to meet and accept it and see if we can, you know, we disentangle it creatively. And to me that's what, you know, the meditation can help us to bring space around the feeling and then try to creatively, in a way, work with it. So, this is it. My time is up.